Hello, and welcome to 37th and the World, the official podcast of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Gajia is the student-run flagship publication of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. On 37th and the World, we dive into key global trends and speak directly with the experts working on these issues in areas ranging from conflict and security, human rights and development, science and technology, society and culture, business and economics, and global governance. In 1995, 30,000 activists from 189 countries converged in Beijing for the United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women. There, they developed the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action, the most comprehensive blueprint to advance gender equality. A watershed moment, the conference laid the groundwork for advances in education, political representation, and healthcare for women around the world. But 25 years later, the COVID-19 pandemic is exposing structural inequalities that these activists have been attempting to address for years. The pandemic is exacerbating the burdens of childcare, endangering frontline workers, and fomenting domestic violence, all issues that disproportionately harm women. In light of the conference's 25th anniversary, the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security published the report titled Beijing Plus 25, Accelerating Progress for Women and Girls to reflect on the past 25 years of progress and provide a roadmap to advance gender equity in a post-pandemic world. In the following interview, Jujia sat down with Dr. Jenny Klugman, Managing Director of the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security to discuss the report. She also highlights new challenges for women in the era of COVID-19 and shares recommendations for policymakers and activists to promote gender equality. Dr. Klugman is also currently a member of the Lancet Global Commission on Gender and Health and previously served as Director of Gender and Development at the World Bank. Um, the Beijing Plus 25 report mentions how COVID-19 is worsening gender inequality in the labor market. So why are female workers disproportionately impacted and how has this played out globally? Well, we've seen disproportionate impacts all around the world, I think arising for several reasons. Um, on the one hand, women are on the front lines in many of the jobs that they play. For example, um, about 80% of healthcare workers are women. Uh, Many of those working in retail, supermarkets and so on are also women. So they're in kind of frontline jobs, which are subject to kind of larger health risks in terms of um, infection. But on the other hand, um, they're also working in occupations which have been disproportionately affected by um, shutdowns and often in positions which are unable to be done remotely. Um, which have led to larger numbers of redundancies um, and layoffs. And combined with this, of course, in many countries, um, is the fact that the widespread closure of schools and, and childcare means that um, the care needs at home are much larger than in the past. Um, and there's surveys uh, from the US, from the UK and elsewhere showing 
that women are carrying the bulk of um, childcare and home responsibilities, which of course is the case in normal times, um, but in these abnormal times, particularly with the closure of schools and childcare, means that um, it's very difficult to uh, to juggle and sustain. So if you look at the most recent figures, just for the US, for example, um, in September, the August-September, um, around 1 million Americans withdrew from the labour force, so they basically dropped out of the labour force, of whom 800,000 were women. Uh, so women are dropping out at basically four times the rate of men. Um, so this is obviously a concern in the short term, but it's also a concern in the longer term because we know labour economists have looked at kind of previous recessions and episodes where um, withdrawal from the labour force can uh, have longer-term repercussions because it's more difficult to re-enter. You know, you not only lose your current earnings, uh, but also you're losing experience and the opportunities to advance. So there's a whole host of reasons uh, to be very concerned about this. Yeah, so you mentioned how this is not only a short-term like unemployment employment loss, but there's a whole host of long-term implications. Could you like further elaborate how this loss of employment might actually stunt development for women? Um, well, just through lacking, you know, either being unable to enter the labour market initially, losing jobs, uh, being forced to go part-time are all things which can have negative implications for um, careers and career progressions um, and, of course, earnings as well. Um so these are kind of immediate impacts, um, but if you kind of look at a graph, it's difficult to visualise um, uh, verbally, um, but if you can imagine, you know, slow expected growth of earnings over time, um, you know, you can see that there's a halt or a um, reversal of that. Um, it'll Maybe it'll eventually kind of resume again, uh, but what you've lost in the time being um, is unlikely to be fully um, fully reversed. So you'll end up being kind of behind in the longer term. Yeah. So are there any like countries out there who you would say are doing a good job trying to, you know, stabilize this impact, this is poor, this disproportionate impact on women? Um, I was trying to look for this the other day. There was a good example from Australia, which is actually where I'm from, um, where they introduced in March um, basically free childcare and kept all the childcare centres open. Um, so that was an important move, um, clearly removed the cost barriers, which can be prohibitive, particularly for lower income workers. Um, and um, as well, you know, important for families, but particularly important for women for the reasons that we've discussed. Um, however, that ended, I think, in July or August. Um, so it wasn't a permanent change. It was just, you know, if you like, a temporary one. Um, I haven't actually seen uh, this challenge being well addressed elsewhere, although, you know, one might well expect that there are innovations um, and or at least experiments taking place um, which allow for um, some degree of coping. I mean, obviously, some employers have become, you know, more flexible, um, allowing, you know, people to work, work remotely. Um, but when you've got the, the balance of... Um, care at home falling on women, um, you know, without the underlying changes and norms and arrangements for that at home, um, 
uh, you know, it's very difficult to uh, to address for employers, I think, to directly address. Yeah, so what recommendations would you give to, say, the U.S. government or other, like, governments around the world as to how to better address this issue? Because this is really, like, an issue rooted in cultural norms. So what could the governments do better in order to, you know, make uh, lessen these sorts of structural inequalities? Um, well, I think affordable childcare is key. Um, and so I'd put that probably number one on the list. Um, I would also um, kind of encourage employers to think about ways in making work flexible, um, both in terms of kind of hours as well as location, um, but doing it in ways which don't assume that it's only going to be women who are taking that up. So kind of male um, uh, leaders and managers within organisations uh, demonstrating that it's possible to, um, you know, work part-time or um, balance care responsibilities in ways that, um, uh, you know, don't lead to um, prejudice to to circumstance, you know, work um, prospects. But um, I think that number one on this really has to be um, kind of affordable, affordable childcare and I guess extended daycare, you know, extended care as well, you know, the kids in school, you know, some schools finish, you know, relatively early in the afternoons, um, which also can mean that, you know, women are expected to be working part-time to be able to care for them in the afternoon. So having kind of good quality affordable care, I think is very much at the top of the list. Yeah. So the report also mentions how COVID-19 not only has worsened gender inequality in the labor market, but it has also facilitated a quote-unquote shadow pandemic, which is a spike in violence against women. Could you further elaborate how this shadow pandemic has manifested and to what extent it's affecting women? Um, no, indeed, there were kind of early reports um, and continuing reports about spikes in violence and um, one can see how that might well come about because of the combination of increased stress, rising levels of poverty, um, kind of financial concerns of household, as well as the fact that, you know, people being cooped up together, um, leading to um, increased risks of violence. I mean, the risks of violence... Um, are always there, uh, but I think um, kind of the underlying factors um, are amplified in the context of COVID, particularly COVID um, lockdown. And then added to this, of course, is the concern that, um, you know, women uh, and their families may not have anywhere to go, uh, it may be very difficult to report, um, and, um, you know, leaving people in very difficult circumstances. So, here again, there are some interesting um, kind of innovations taking place um, with um, kind of new forms of hotlines and texts being run by various civil society organisations. Um, there are some interesting examples from Europe about um, kind of code and sign language being introduced that people could use or women could use when they're out in public to signify um that they're under threat uh, without necessarily using their phones uh, because in some cases in abusive relationships, you know, women either don't have their own phones or don't have control of those. So it can be risky to use those to um, report violence. Um, and then another aspect which is, I think, important um, is uh, relates to the response of the um, justice system. 
Um, so whilst many courts close down, it's important that they still be in a position to issue kind of protection orders and interim orders to ensure um, the safety of women and their families when they're under threat. Awesome. So shifting towards the uh, big picture, in your view, how well has gender equity progressed or regressed in the past 25 years since the Beijing 1995 conference? And what are some of the biggest factors that you believe have contributed to this progression or regression? Um, I mean, it's difficult to make an overall <laughs> assessment. I mean, clearly there has been progress in some areas. Um, I think in education, uh, in some aspects of sexual reproductive health and uh, reductions in fertility, um, and, you know, some opening up of economic opportunities in a number of countries around the world, as well as, I think, you know, the increasing engagement and um, effectiveness of civil society uh, and collective voice have, have all been important advances. Um, on the other hand, you know, clearly violence is still pervasive. Um, women are still kind of mainly doing stereotypical kind of occupations and careers in, in too many places. Um, there are um, still the, the, the glass ceilings in place, which mean that, you know, still fewer than about 5% of CEOs are, um, are women. Um, so I think it's important to look at, you know, the range of different factors. It's, there's no single dimension uh, which fully captures, I think, the situation of, uh, of women and girls around the world. Um, I think in some areas there, there has been important progress. I think it's very important as well to focus on the, the needs and constraints of the most marginalised women. So women who are poor, come from ethnic minorities, uh, sexual minorities and so on. Um, so whilst things may get kind of relatively, um, how can I say, um, uh, kind of equitable um, for for people coming from more privileged backgrounds, uh, women from more privileged backgrounds, um, uh, you know, there's a whole host of, I think, barriers facing women, particularly um, uh, poor and minority women. And actually in the more recent report that we published um, for the US uh, with the Women, Peace and Security Index there, we documented in particular the barriers facing um African-American and uh, Latina women in uh, in the US. Um, so, uh, you know, overall, I think, um, you know, a time of um, significant change, um, I think probably less progress than one might have imagined or expected, um, but it means that, you know, we have to continue to focus to, um, to advance the agenda and indeed to accelerate progress. Yeah, exactly. So the past couple of years, we've also seen a sharp rise in strongmen politicians from the U.S. to the Philippines to, say, even Poland. Um, how large of a threat do you believe they pose to women's advancement? Oh, very significant, I think. Um, and then we've also got kind of more general backlash, um, which I think in some cases some of these strongmen, you know, are, um, are reflecting as well. So... Um, yeah, I mean, certainly where there's legislative uh, reversals. So, for example, in the US, um, limiting access to reproductive health and abortion services is, you know, a real um, diminution of um, women's choice and agency um, in other countries as well. You know, there have actually been um, uh, kind of direct actions with 
major repercussions. Um, and then I think symbolically as well, um, you know, creates a, um, not only symbolically, but in terms of the atmosphere, if you like, and the culture, you know, it sets, you know, extremely uh, bad precedent, I think. Um, you know, we're all looking for role models, uh, particularly for the young, uh, to set an example as to how we should um, not necessarily mimic, you know, but to set some standards on behaviour and, and language and so on, and where those are being constantly breached in, in public life and certainly by na national leaders. Um, I think it's a real concern. Yeah, so in light of these, you know, strong men politicians, what are your recommendations to female activists on the ground or policy or policymakers who are trying to advance women's equity? Well, keep up the great work, I would say, and don't be, um, you know, look for tangible areas of progress. Um, I mean, I, you know, women activists are doing a whole range of things. Some of them, you know, providing direct services and support, others working more on the advocacy side for policy and program reform. Um, all of those are very important. Um, I guess one thing I would say would be to consider um, the potential for coalitions, you know, for broader groups uh, to create change. Um, and then I guess the other thing I would say would be to include diverse voices as well. You know, so the bringing together of in the US, coming back to the US again, I'm sorry, uh, but kind of racial and gender justice together um, is very important and very powerful. Uh, so think about the commonalities and the synergies across agendas. Um, so it's not just seen as a, uh, a women's issue. All right, awesome. Um, is there anything else you would like to share or any other recommendations that you want people to know? Um, no, I think we've covered uh, the story well. I mean, I would certainly encourage people to, to glance over the report if they're interested. Um, I think it provides quite a good synthesis of both progress as well as what needs to be done. Uh, and for anyone who's interested in the US in particular, um, our more recent US uh, Women, Peace and Security Index, I think, um, which estimates the status and rights of women for all 50 states plus Washington, D.C., um, as well as kind of racial and other um, angles um, as um, interesting things to um, to read in their, in their spare time. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. I think that I've learned a lot definitely from this and I hope our viewers will learn a lot too. Okay, thank you very much, Claire. Very happy to All do right. so. Thank you so okay. much. All right, bye-bye. Okay, cheers, bye. was 37th and the world. Thank you to Dr. Jenny Klugman and our interviewer, Claire Wang. Please be sure to subscribe, leave a comment and rating on whichever streaming platform you use. To read this interview and other insightful interviews and articles, please check out gajia.georgetown.edu. Thank you for listening and see you next time, where we will be discussing the Yemeni civil war's past, present, and future with Dr. Charles Schmitz.